Romans chapter number 5, and I'd like to begin reading verse number 6 this morning. I want to notice something that I think is, is both fascinating and fundamental and important in the Word of God and spend a little time just, uh, just expounding and learning from the Scriptures this morning. Romans chapter number 5, verse number 6, the Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house this morning. Now, Lord, you know the heart's condition of each and every person here. And, Lord, I do not. So I trust the Holy Ghost of God to move and to work in hearts this morning. And, Lord, I know that there is no message, that there is no sermon, that there is no truth that you impart to us but what it is meaningful and relevant and impactful and present truth for this present hour. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would have liberty to take the Scriptures and apply them to hearts as is needed. And Lord, may it produce in us a life that looks more like Jesus Christ. If there's any under the sound of my voice that are lost and undone, Lord, they may have never been inside a church building until this morning, or they may have played church for many years, Lord, but... In this moment, they are lost, they are undone. I pray that You'd show them that need and that, Lord, that You'd show them that You love them, that You died for them, that there's hope in Calvary. And, Lord, for those of us that know You and have known You uh, as our Savior, I pray that You'd help us to appreciate once again the precious price that was paid for our sins. And, Lord, may our faith be activated by that devotion that we have towards You. May we seek to live out that faith before this broken world. Lord, we know that's what our world needs most of all. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs the grace of God. Help us to be ambassadors of that grace. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter number 5 is probably one of the most towering of all of the chapters in the Word of God. It's really hard to overstate, Brother Ken, how lofty the ideas are that are set forth in this chapter. But there is one particular phrase that I'm interested in, and we'll preach using most of what we talked about in some other passages. But there is one phrase that interests me this morning, and I want you to notice it with me. Verse number 9 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says, "...much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him." Did you notice that phrase? The Bible says that we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can probably turn a page or two backwards to the third chapter of the book of Romans and notice another verse with me this morning. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, listen to what the Holy Ghost pins down through the Apostle's pen. It says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Chapter 5 says we are justified by His blood. Chapter 3 says we are justified by faith. 
I find in the book of James, and you can turn there if you feel as though you can do it swiftly. If not, I'm just going to read one verse at this moment. And you can listen carefully. James chapter 2, verse 21, we have another interesting phrase that is mentioned. James, writing to these early Jewish believers, says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, I'll admit to you, I'm not an educated man. But when I read these three verses back to back, it produces some interesting notes. But also, if I'm being frank with you, it ought to cause most of us thinking people to ask some questions. Because in Romans chapter 5, we're told that we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, we are told that a man is justified by faith. And then in James chapter number 2, the Bible says we are justified by works. So here's the question, what is justification and by what are we justified? Are these three verses in conflict or contradiction with each other. Well, now, as a Bible believer, I think most of us would be compelled to have to answer, no, indeed, they are not in conflict with each other. I found this to be true. Any time that I've read through my Bible and thought God got something wrong, if I just backed up and read it again a time or two, I found out it was me that had it wrong and not the Lord. I believe God knew what He was doing when He gave us our King James Bible, and I believe that these three verses stand beside in perfect harmony of one another. And not only that, Brother Charlie, I believe there is an amplification of truth that is revealed in these three passages. So if I can this morning, I want to take just a few moments of your time. And uh, you say, well, preacher, I would, I, I wish you'd take just a few. Uh, and I would say this this morning, we got food sitting over there, all right? So I know the steaks this morning, all right? And don't get, I don't mean there's steak over there. Don't get excited. But I mean, I know, I know how serious this is. It, it, it's serious all the time, Brother Kim, but you, you throw macaroni and cheese in the mix, it gets real serious real quick. And I'm aware of that. And so I just want to take a few moments of your time and preach to you on this thought this morning, justified by what? How is a man justified before God? I told my Sunday school class this morning, I was raised in a Bible-believing church. I was raised in private Christian education. I was raised sitting in chapels and children's churches and, and sermons and Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and revivals and conferences. And I was inundated at a young age with much of the language of Christianity. And if we're not careful, Brother Ken, we'll take for granted that people understand what we're saying when very often if they've not had that same shared experience with us, they'll look at us and say, I don't know what you mean when you describe justification. So let me define for you. And I think really, if I'm to be honest, I hate to say this because you're going to get impatient, but really the introduction is going to preach my sermon this morning. Uh, Because if we really consider what the word justified means, we have a basic elementary definition and exposition of these verses. So when I say something is justified, what exactly do we mean? The term justification is the act of justifying something. But even that term justify, Brother Charlie, it can mean a few different things. For instance, uh, the term justify, it can mean to make something just, or we might say it can mean to pardon something. 
In other words, it means to reconcile two different parties with each other. It means to make a man that is wrong to make him right. To make a man that is a sinner a saint. It means to pardon a man, to forgive him, and to remove those obstacles that stand in between two parties. Can I say I'm glad for the day I was reconciled to the Lord that I was justified, that I was pardoned of my sins. But then when we use the term justification, sometimes it has to do with pardon. Other times it has to do with position. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, and I'm going to give an illustration from the modern age. I hope that's okay. Most of us probably have a word processor on our computer. We probably have typed at some point. Uh, maybe even some old school typewriters would have this function. Uh, but we have probably used some sort of technology like that. And uh, on most word processors, if you look up in the upper right hand corner, you're typing out your, uh, your, your notes, you're typing out your message, whatever it might be. You look up in the corner, Brother Charlie, and you'll see about four different little boxes there. And they all have a series of lines on them. And on one of them, all the lines start at the left. On another one, Brother Bill, all the lines start on the right. At another one, it's like you drew a line in the middle and they all just sort of started in the middle. And then there's a fourth one where on both sides, those lines are perfectly even. These are called your justify buttons. And here's what they do. They set your text to a certain position. To put everything at the left is called justified left. To put it all at the right-hand side is justified right. To put it in the middle is justified center. And then to just square it up on both sides, that's justify all. And what it means is to set things at a right position. You know, the term justification can have to do with your position or your orientation, where you are positioned relative to God. I'm thankful for the day I was put on the right side of Calvary. I'm, I, I, I was born in a wrong condition. I was born in a wrong place, and I don't mean geographically, I mean spiritually. I was born a sinner. I was born alienated from God. I was born on the wrong side of this matter. But praise God that I was put on the right side of this matter. I was born into the wrong kingdom, but I got born again into the right kingdom. And I was translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I switched sides. Somebody say amen right there. And then sometimes the term justification, it has to do with proof. Now, we use this term very often. We might say to somebody, if they have given warning about something and that warning has proven to be wise, they might say something like this, well, I feel justified in what I said. Or I feel justified in what I did. And what they are saying is I have been proven to be right and correct. And it has to do with vindication. So when we use the term justification... We have to determine what we're talking about. Are we talking about pardon? Are we talking about a man that that, that has sin, uh, being cleansed of that sin and being made right with God? Are we talking about position, a man that's in the wrong place spiritually, being put in the right place spiritually? Or are we talking about proof, something that's already happened, being proven to be so? And you might say, well, preacher, which are we talking about this morning? And I say, yes. We're talking about all three. Because, see, the key to understanding these three passages is to understand that each one of us, each one of them reveals to us something about our salvation. Justification is a part of what God did when He saved us. And it shows something about what God did. I'll tell you this, man, as a ten-year-old boy, December 1st, 1997, I sure enough didn't know what I was getting into when I asked God to save me. I don't mean that irreverently. I'm just telling you, I, I didn't understand everything 
And day by day, you know, I found out more, Brother Fred, of what God did for me that day. I knew a few things. I knew I was a sinner and couldn't save myself. I, I knew there were, that I couldn't work my way to heaven. I, I, I knew and understood that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was God in the flesh. I knew He had died for my sins and that He rose again the third day. And I could pray and ask Him to forgive me and save me because He was alive and He, he was able to do that. But man, I would have never, I would have never dreamed what all God did for me that day when He saved me. Man, He sanctified me. He separated me. He consecrated me. I mean, listen, on and on, He adopted me into the family of God and the covenants of God. I mean, on and on we could go. And one of the things He did was He justified me. But how exactly could God do that? And how did God do that? And what did that do in my life? So let's consider these passages together. The first one is Romans chapter 5. We read the entirety of the text we're going to use there. But it is verse number 9 that gives us our point of of introspection. It says in verse 9, much more than being now justified by His blood. doesn't say just by blood in general, because then it could have been pig's blood or chicken's blood. It could have been your blood or my blood. But it tells us whose blood we are justified by. We are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. In other words, we, we could say it this way. Romans chapter 5 says we're justified by His blood. And what that means, Brother Ken, is that the blood of Jesus Christ is the means of our justification. It's the means of our justification. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus that makes our justification, that makes our salvation possible. When we read in this text, we see abundantly clear why that is. Notice with me in the text here in Romans chapter 5. First off, there's, there's a few things interesting to him, but one of the things that I immediately notice is the description of the sinner. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, look back in verse number 6. The Bible says that we were yet without strength. So here's a lost sinner. He is born into that condition. He's born a sinner. Uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our nature. We're all born into sin. The Bible says that death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. And part of the text we're going to read here in a moment, Romans 3, it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So every man, every woman, uh, every person is born a sinner. What does that mean? What does God consider that to mean? Well, we notice that the first thing he says about us in that condition is we were without strength. Now, a person without strength is without the means to avail themselves, to deliver themselves. That's a pretty good description of how a person's born. Uh, we are born in our sinful condition and we don't have the means to change that. We can make God all the promises we want. We can make all the commitments that we want. Uh, we can make promises to other people. We can try to turn over new leaf after new leaf after new leaf. But none of that will change the fact that we are sinners. Uh, we can commit to live a better life moving forward. But that doesn't address how we've lived in our past. We are without strength. A lost person is lost by their birth and they are in bondage in that lost condition until they receive the Lord. They can't work their way out. They can't baptize their way out. Uh, they can't church, uh, church join their way out. <laughs> There's nothing they can do. They're without strength. They don't have the ability to do it. Listen, you might as well, you might as well ask a lame man just to get up and walk. You might as well ask a blind person just to start seeing. Uh, you might as well ask a dead person to climb up out of the casket. They are without strength to do that. We get awful frustrated as Christians at how lost the world is. 
But really we shouldn't because that's just uh, how the world is. Uh, the world is a, a place full of lost individuals that are broken uh, in their lostness. They don't know the Lord. They don't know God. And, uh, and they behave that way. That shouldn't surprise us at all. If anything should surprise us, it should surprise us the, uh, the world is not in worse condition uh, than it is today because the world is peopled by and large with people that don't know the Lord. Uh, they are lost in their brokenness. So they are without strength. Verse number 8 gives us another description. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 8, that God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet what? Sinners. Sinners. That's a pretty good description of a lost person. It describes the way they live their life. Uh, they live their life according to the rules of sin. Now, what are the rules of sin? Well, the rules of sin are do what feels good in that moment. Dismiss the consequences of it. Dismiss the spiritual reality of it. Just do whatever feels good in that moment. Uh, the Bible describes it for us. Paul does. And uh, I believe it's the book of, uh, of Ephesians that uh, in our past life we walked according to the course of the children of disobedience. The course of the Spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The course, he says, of this world. In other words, they're just going down a course, just going down a path. And that's how a lost person is. They don't know there's any way they can live other than how they're living. You listening to me? They don't know there's any way they can live other than how they're living. They just think that's what life is. They're sinners, and so they live like sinners. You and I, we are sinners redeemed by the grace of God. Now you say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it means this, that inasmuch as we live in the new man, we live in spiritual truth, inasmuch as we let God lead and guide our lives, we'll resist sin to the best of our ability. But the fact is, don't none of us do it perfectly. So we still sin, you still sin, I still sin. Every one of us does. We are still sinners, though we are redeemed by the grace of God. One of these days, God's going to take away that sin nature from us when He gives us a new body. So they're described as sinners. But it's not just that. You see, we're getting worse, Brother Ken. I mean, first, they're just without strength. You don't fault a man for being without strength. You don't fault a man for being weak or infirm. But now then it says we are sinners. But then it gets even worse. You know, a person that's a sinner is someone that's actively engaging in wrong behavior. But it gets even worse. Verse 10 says this. Uh, down in verse number 10 says, For if when we were enemies... Now, who are we enemies of? Well, it goes on to say we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, it just stands to reason, if God's who we had to be reconciled to, then He's the one whose enemy we were. Look, James describes this perfectly for us. It says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity means you've got a problem with somebody. Enmity. Enmity with the world. Uh, and that friendship with the world, uh, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world, is the enemy of God. So a lost person is the enemy of God. Now, there's people that that rankles. They say, man, I, you know, that's not fair. I, I've got a cousin or I've got a brother or I've got a sister or I've got a friend and they don't know the Lord, but they, you know, they don't hate my Christianity. You know, we have this concept in our highly politicized world today that to be on the opposite side of an issue is to hate the person on the other side. And we're conditioned to believe that, that you can't disagree with someone without hating them. Uh, but through time and eternity past, that's not always been the case. All that had to happen for two people to be enemies was for them to be on two different sides of an issue. And that's how the lost person is. He may not harbor a deep, seething hatred of God, but he's on the wrong side of this matter of his own righteousness. He thinks he's okay. God says that he's not. He thinks he can get to heaven on his own or he thinks that there is no heaven and that he's going to enjoy life as it is. And that's not what God says about it. He thinks he's okay. God says he is not. He thinks he's living. God says he's dead. They are on the wrong side of these paramount issues. And that's how the lost person is. He's not only without strength and a sinner, but he is an enemy of God. So that's how God describes the sinner. Now here's the question. How do we fix that? 
Well, how did God fix it? Look what it says in our text. It says, when we were like that, man, when we were ungodly sinners, uh, when we were without strength, when we were the enemies of God, what did God do about that? How did God change that? It says in verse 8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we see not only the description of the sinner, we see the substitution of the sinner. Man, that phrase is one of the most important in your Bible. Christ died for us. Not just for our benefit, but in our place. You and I, we deserve to die in our sins. We deserve any amount of wrath God could pour out on us. Now, before you get mad at God, can I just remind you that God loved you enough and He showed that love to you by allowing His only begotten Son to die that death that you and I should have died. Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, I wouldn't have never died on a hill uh, nailed to a cross uh, in, in the land of Israel. That would have never happened to me. That's true, but the spiritual death that happened, God pouring out His wrath on His Son, that would have happened to you and I and should have happened to you and I. But the grace of God and the love of God substituted that punishment, that death that should have come upon you and I, put it on Jesus Christ. God says this, you are a sinner, you have transgressed my righteousness, you deserve to die in that sin, but I love you and I want to change that and I want to do something about that. So I'm going to take my son, I'm going to pour all this on him and there's going to be a substitution that takes place. He's going to step into your place and guess what you get to do? You get to step into his place. He's going, he's going to be the sinner on the cross and you're going to be the child of God. So we see the substitution of the sinner and then we see the reconciliation of the sinner. The Bible says that there are three things remarkably said about you and I after we get saved. It says number one, verse number eight, tells us that we are loved. Now, to be fair, we're loved before we ever get saved. We're, we're loved even if we don't get saved. Uh, the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The world, the Bible says He tasted death for every man. And the reason He tasted death was because He loved them. Uh, therefore, He loves every man. That's what Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, that uh, the love of Christ constraineth us. Uh, for we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. In other words, the fact that Jesus died for everybody tells us He loves everybody. He's interested in everybody. He has a plan for everybody's life. Even those that reject Him, He loves them. It is with broken heart uh, that He has to see them uh, accrue the punishment that is so justly due to them. He doesn't want that to happen. You say, prove it to me. Calvary proves it to you and me. If He didn't care about you, He wouldn't have done what He did. He wouldn't have sent His Son to die for you and I. So we are loved. Number two, uh, the Bible says in verses 9 and 10, says it twice. In verse 9 says we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Verse number 10 says we shall be saved by His life. So we are saved. Now, the word saved is kind of like the word justified. It can have a lot of meanings in the Word of God. But here I think what it's talking about is we are saved from the punishment of our sins. We deserve that punishment, but we are spared of it. We are pardoned of it. Now, you might say, well, preacher, what does that mean? Well, that means we are justified. We were unjust, but then the just, Peter says, died for the unjust. And now we step into His place and we are made just in the eyes of God. We are reconciled to Him. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way it could have happened. He had to die that death for us. He had to pay that price. You say, preacher, I'll pay my own price. No, you won't. You can't and I can't. You know, the Bible tells us that when a person dies and goes to hell, that they endure the punishment of God throughout eternity. Throughout eternity. The book of Isaiah describes those in hell, the smoke of their torment arising up forever and ever and ever, Brother Charlie. Uh, they, they endure that torment forever. You know why? Because they really can't pay for their sins. 
They're trying to, listen, they have transgressed God's perfect law and they're trying to pay for it with imperfection. They're trying to play, pay with plastic diamonds and plug nickels. They ain't got what it takes. But Jesus being perfect, He could pay that debt for you and I. It is by His blood. We are loved, we are saved. And verse 10 says we are reconciled. We are put where we need to be with God. We are set righteous before Him. And now we are justified. Meaning, when God looks at us, He sees us as just. We can do that with almost any word. If a person is mystified, it means they, they are, uh, there is a mysteriousness about their apprehension and about their understanding. If they are dignified, it means there is dignity about them. If we are justified, Brother Ken, it means there is justness ascribed to us. We are just before God. Now turn back a chapter. You know, this is one of those things. It ain't, if you're trying to line up, if, you, if you've got something you're trying to uh, bolt in and it's got three bolt holes, the first one's always the easiest. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> you just put it up anywhere. Just, the first one's the easiest. But what about these other two? Uh, what about these other passages? Well, in Romans chapter 3, let's read a little bit of Scripture here and let's, let's get the context. Because we're told down in verse number uh, 28 of this passage that we are justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. So what does that mean? Well, let's start back here at verse number 19. The Bible says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith... Now that's talking about the Old Testament law. Six hundred and some odd. There's some debate as to how many exactly there is. Depends on how you divide certain things. But about 613 commandments in the Old Testament. That God gave Moses on Sinai and He said, This is what justness, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what I expect out of you. And Paul says, now we know that whatsoever, uh, that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. That makes sense, right? Uh, laws are written with a jurisdiction. And God says these things were written to those that are under the law, meaning he's talking about Jewish individuals. But he says, this is why they were written, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You say, well, what, what is that righteousness? Well, it says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. Now, there may be some words in there you're not familiar with. We'll define them as we move through them. But it says that God wanted to do this, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of them, of him which believeth in Jesus. Whereas boasting then, it is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, Romans chapter 5 says we're justified by his blood. But here in Romans chapter 3, we're told that we are justified by faith. What is the difference? Well, I would say this, that the blood of Jesus Christ is the means of our salvation. It would be impossible to approach unto God without the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the prerequisite. It is the credentials. We have no ground to stand on without the blood of Jesus Christ. But faith is the manner of our salvation. 
In fact, let me say it this way. By the blood of Jesus Christ, it makes our salvation possible. wouldn't even be able to happen without. But you know, there are things that are a possibility that are never a reality. There's all kinds of things that people could do that they don't ever do. So how exactly is it that a person is saved? Well, here we're told that faith is what makes our salvation personal. Christ died for every man. But it's apparent that not every person in the world is saved. Let me make a bold statement. Every one of them could be. I believe that. I believe every one of them could be. Because I think Jesus died for every single one of them. doesn't matter their race or their uh, class, quote-unquote. doesn't matter their gender. doesn't matter their financial standing. It doesn't matter their tax bracket. doesn't matter their political affiliation. He died for every single person. Because He loves every single one of them. But it's apparent not everybody's going to be saved. What's the difference? Well, the difference is all of them could be. But the only ones that are going to be saved are those that are willing to place their faith in that shed blood that was given on the cross. Now, we notice a few things in the text before us this morning, and I just want to kind of read through them and give some definitions. In verse 19, the function of the law, the Old Testament law, is described for us. Now, here's why that's important. Uh, Jews, then and now, if they are practicing, observing Orthodox Jews, they are of the belief that if they keep the law, that will make them just with God. But you know, God never said that. It was not true in the Old Testament, it's not true in the New Testament, that doing good works or keeping the law could make a man righteous with God. Now somebody's going to say, well, that's good, preacher. Go up to New York and preach to the Hasidic Jews. That's good, preacher. Go to Philadelphia, go to Atlanta and preach to those Hasidic Jews. They need that. But listen, you know what Paul said in the book of Romans? That for the Gentiles that don't know anything about the law, that they have their own law. And you know what it's called? It's called the conscience. I know a lot of good, homegrown, East Tennessee, good old boys and girls that are trying to get to heaven by keeping the law of their conscience. You know what they're doing? They're saying, they say things like this. You say, do you know the Lord is your Savior? And they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. What do they mean? They mean me and my conscience gets along. I can sleep at night. I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm doing what I believe is probably good and is probably okay. Well, who's telling you that what you're doing and how you're living is okay? It's your conscience telling you that. That's the law that they keep under themselves. So you see, whether you're a Jew under the, under the law of commandment or a Gentile under the law of conscience, neither of them can make a man right with God. You know why? Because this is what the law was given for. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you know that there is, has never been a law, listen now, there's never been a law passed that made a man do the right thing? Never once. You know how you know that? Because prisons are full of people. It's not the law that makes a man do what is right. Uh, There are all kinds, we can pass all kinds of laws throughout all of society and we can expect that that will help us. But at the end of the day, those laws are not given to constrain man's behavior, but rather to reveal their behavior for what it is. There are things that we might do that we don't even know is illegal. You could go down a big long laundry list. You can find them online of all kinds of absurd laws that have stuck around since ages past in various states across the country and things that people do that they're not even aware that what they're doing is against the law. They say the average person breaks something like 15 traffic laws in the space of every single mile or two miles that they that they drive. The fact is the law is not given to constraint but to reveal something. And that's what the Old Testament law was given. It wasn't given to make a man right with God, but to show a man that he wasn't right with God. Your conscience is not there to make you feel like you are right with God. It's there to show you when you are not right with God if you're a lost person. You say, what about saved people? we got something even greater than conscience. 
Because we can sear our conscience and we can soothe our conscience. But when a person gets born again, the Spirit of God takes up residence in their life and He won't be quieted. He will make apparent what we've done is wrong. So the law was never given to make a man righteous. And here's why. Notice the feebleness of the law. The Bible says, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. By keeping the law, all you're doing is acknowledging that you are a lawbreaker that needs laws to make you live correctly. I don't want to get in some kind of weird, esoteric, anarchist, libertarian ground here. But (laughs) suffice it to say that the purpose of the law is to show us just what we are doing wrong. Uh, the Bible tells us in the, uh, elsewhere in the book of Romans that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. You know the problem with laws is we're prone to break them. The law could, could make us right with God if we were automatrons, if we were perfect individuals. You know the irony? If we were perfect individuals, we wouldn't have needed the law in the first place. The law is feeble. And where is the weakness of the law? Not that the law is wrong but that we're weak and we can't keep it. Just telling a person they're wrong will not make them right. Oh boy, don't we need that today? Just telling a person they're wrong. Now, a person probably won't get right, Brother Ken, unless they know they're wrong, but just telling a person they're wrong is not what makes them right with God. It's not what gets a person right. And the law, all it could do was tell a man that he was wrong. But listen to what God did. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, it goes on to describe us whose righteousness that is. Verse 22, it says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say faith in Jesus Christ. That's an important distinction. Uh, Here's why that's important, because it's talking about Jesus' faith. Not just our faith in Him, but Jesus' faith. And it's saying that the righteousness of God without the law, meaning this, Jesus didn't have to have the law to tell Him to be righteous. He was perfect. He was sinless. He never did anything wrong. And He did not do what was right because He feared the law or because the law told Him to. He was the author of the law. He did those things. you remember what He said? He said, I do always those things which please my Father. He didn't do it because He had to. He did it because it was His nature. He's perfect. You know what the law and the prophets did? They witnessed that. In other words, all they did was looked at Jesus and said, oh yes, this man is perfect. He is righteous. That's the reason when they crucified Him, they had to pay people to lie about Him. Because they couldn't find anything to accuse Him of. Anything to, to, to uh, single Him out. Or they couldn't find anything to criticize Him over. Why? Because the law, He measured up to the law. We see the fulfillment of the law here. He fulfilled it. You know, He made this statement to those that were following Him. He said, I have not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. He's saying, I I haven't come because I'm an enemy of the law, but because I am the manifestation, I'm the example of the law. And he says, I have come to show you what the law looks like if it was robed in flesh and walked around and was kept perfectly. And he said, I've done that to show you that you cannot do that, but that I have done it. And you can now take this, this righteousness and put it on you. And when God looks at you, He won't see you, He'll see me. We see the fulfillment of the law. He kept every portion of the law. He never broke a law. And then we see in verse 22 the free offer of life that's given. What did he do? Even the righteousness which is of God, righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there though. It says, unto all. And upon all them that believe. Unto all means anybody can have it. And upon all them that believe means those that will believe in Jesus Christ. They have that righteousness placed upon them. 
It says, for there is no difference, meaning between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what grace is? Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. So here's what Jesus did. He came down He lived perfectly amongst man. He kept every single portion of the law. And then we did not deserve it, but He took that righteousness and He said, give me your brokenness. Give me your sinfulness. Give me your bad record and your bad reputation and your bad account with God. Put all that on me. And I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it on you. And you don't deserve it, but by His grace... It is given unto us. We see the free offer of life, and it's free to all. Every single person. Every person under the sound of my voice. Every person not under the sound of my voice. There's not a person born in this world that Jesus did not die for. It is unto all. And then we see, verse 25, the faith that lives. It says, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Now, that term propitiation, in the Old Testament there was a word used, and we read it a moment ago in Romans chapter 5, but it was the word atonement. So when a man sinned, that sin had to be dealt with. And there was two ways that it could be dealt with. One, it could be covered up. And that's what those sacrifices in the Old Testament did. They just covered that sin. But it didn't last very long. In fact, every single year they had to continue to give those sacrifices. Those sins never went away. The New Testament word is propitiation. You know what that means? It means to wash it away. So you could cover it or you could cleanse it. Here's what Jesus did. He doesn't just cover our sin. He cleanses it. He takes it away. God has set Him forth for that reason, to take away our sin, to cleanse us. And here's how that's done, through faith in His blood. How does that happen? To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Uh, The remission means to take them away, to clear you of those things. And the forbearance of God means the patience and the love of God. You You know a good East Tennessee way of saying the word forbearance? Putting up with. The putting up with of God. God has been patient. And here's what He does. He declares. He declares in a legal way. He declares. The same way whenever a person might adopt a child and they stand at a courthouse and they publicly witness and they declare that they are taking this child for their own. They're making a public declaration. That's what God does. He declares at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. God did all this for us, and all we have to do is trust that He'll do what He said. That if we'll ask Him to forgive us and save us, then He will say, all right, now we're not looking at your righteousness anymore, but I'm declaring that my righteousness is going to be how I'm going to deal with you. So faith is the manner of our salvation. Turn over to James chapter 2. We'll move quickly through this last one. James chapter number 2. I can smell the macaroni and cheese. I'm going to have eight people come up to me with plates of nothing but mac and cheese for the Ralph after the service. Please don't do that. I do like it, but I don't like it that much. Amen. James chapter number 2. Let's think about this last one. Now, a lot of times you get that first hole lined up when you're bolting something on. That's easy. And then that second one, if you get it lined up, you think you've got it right. But it's possible if there's three bolts, but Charlie, you could just have it flipped around. So if we can get this third bolt to line up, Brother Ken, I believe we've got it figured out. I believe we'll understand what this word justification means. The first one has to do with pardon, reconciliation. That's what Paul says, we've been reconciled to God. The second has to do with our position. We were in a wrong position with God, we've been put in a right position with Him. What about this third one? James says in James chapter 2, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father, here we find that phrase, justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Here we're told that we are justified by works. Now, the blood is the means of our salvation. wouldn't be possible. It makes salvation possible. And then faith is the manner of our salvation of our justification. In other words, it makes faith personal. He died for everyone. But the way that you experience that justification is by putting your faith in Him. Here in James chapter number 2, we're told that works are the manifestation of our faith and of our salvation. In other words, it is works that makes our salvation practical. Now, can I make a very clear observation and declaration here? You know something I notice when I read through this, Brother Ken? There's a lot of people get mixed up on this passage. And the reason is because they're trying to make it say what they want it to say instead of what it does say. What does it say? Well, I notice that every time it talks about faith and works, it always takes for granted that faith is present there. It says, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? In other words, it's not that he doesn't have faith, but he does have works. It said he does have faith, but his faith is lacking works. Verse 17, it says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. It doesn't say it's not there. It just says it's dead. And it goes out of its way to tell us it's there because it says being alone. Verse number 18, it says that a man can say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. It never says you don't have faith. It says you can't show it to me if you don't have works. We can look down in verse number 19 and it says, O vain man, uh, uh, it says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is death. Not faith isn't there and works has to be, but faith without works, taking for granted that it's there. And on and on we could go. We could see down in verse 22, it says, See thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works faith was made perfect, not works without faith. On and on we could go, but... Every instance, faith is present there. And the suggestion is never that a man's works justify him before God in the sense of his personal soul salvation. But remember that third definition we talked about? Justification. It can have to do with pardon, reconciliation. It can have to do with position and orientation. But it can also have to do with proof or vindication. I feel justified. Why? Because I've been proven right. Don't you feel justified? Because you've been proven Correct. Here's what works does. It proves the reality of what faith has wrought in our hearts. 
works doesn't save us. My pastor used to say it this way, and I thought this was a pretty good way to say it. He said, I don't believe in faith and works. He said, I believe in a faith that works. In other words, he's saying, I don't believe I have to believe God and then I have to do good works and He'll forgive me of my sins and save me. But rather, I believe that if I trust in the Lord and He saves me and changes my life, that's going to, Brother Charlie, produce in me a, a, uh, a reaction and a production of works and behavior and obedience in my life. And that's what James is talking about here. In fact, here's the way I would say it. We notice a few things that he says that works are relative to our faith. Notice the first thing has to do with the profitability of our faith. Works is what makes faith profitable. A man can say uh, that he has faith. In fact, the illustration that James gives is he can look at somebody that's naked and cold and doesn't have anything to eat and can say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. And he may truly, genuinely believe that those things are possible and available to that person, but that has not changed that person's circumstances if he has not acted upon that faith and done what he can to produce a change in that circumstance. So we see this. Works are what makes faith profitable. we got too many theoretical Christians in our day. we we got, we got too, many, uh, too many academic Christians, not enough practical Christians. We've got a lot of observing Christians. That's all they do is observe. We need some folks that's going to put some teeth in their faith and is going to respond appropriately, mind you, to the work that God has wrought in their hearts. Works are the appropriate response. It is what it is what makes our faith profitable. There's a lot of people, they can quote as much Bible as you could ever imagine, but they don't ever take that Bible and do anything with it by serving the Lord. I remember hearing Leonard Ravenhill say one time that you can have doctrine as straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. And that's true. There's a lot of people that they're that way, Brother Ken. They got all of their doctrine worked out, and that's good. God bless you. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. I'm not against doctrine, but I'm saying that doctrine should produce a behavior in us. So, works is the profitability of our faith. Number two, works is the proof of our faith. It says, yeah, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So in other words, a person sincerely serving the Lord is doing so because they believe in the Lord. They believe in Him. The Bible says, uh, He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Why does a man come to God? Because he believes God exists, he believes God's who He says He is, and he believes that God will reward his sincere pursuit of Him. So works are the proof of our faith. Number three, works are the purpose of our faith. (laughs) I love this verse. Sometimes people talk about hard preaching. There ain't no hard preaching. There's just hard truth. You hear me? There ain't no hard preaching. There's just hard truth. There ain't no hard preaching. There's just stuff we don't like. And we call that hard. This is, this is, this is hard truth. Look what he says in verse number 19. He says, Thou believest there is one God. Thou doest well. Pat yourself on the back. God bless you. That's wonderful. You got your doctrine sorted out. God bless you. That's wonderful. You believe that there's one God. And he, and he takes that knife and You know what he says? He says, the devils also believe and tremble. I know Baptists that don't tremble. I'm talking about at the name of God that don't tremble. But the devils believe and tremble. But here's the question. Is trembling what God desires to produce in us? Is that what He wants? Does He want trembling? Is that all? No. Here's what James is saying. He was saying, the purpose of your faith is not faith for the sake of faith. It's not that we are just an empty vessel, ideologically speaking, and God wants to pour truth into us. 
It's that God endeavors to change us as individuals by the truth that is placed in our life. He wants more than trembling. Listen, He wants obedience. The devils have faith. They believe. They believe probably more firmly than a lot of of, uh, uh, alleged Bible believers do. But it doesn't produce in them any obedience to God. They have genuine faith. They truly believe it. But it's not obedient faith. It's not sincere faith in the sense of submissive faith. And here's what he's saying. You know, the purpose of your faith and mine is that we be made more like Jesus Christ. You can have all the theoretical knowledge in the world. And by the way, all knowledge is theoretical knowledge before it's practical knowledge. I'm not saying it's wrong to know your Bible. If anything, we've got too many people who don't know their Bibles. God bless you. Learn your Bible. We spend a lot of time and energy. I spend a lot of my own personal time uh, trying to do what I can to put a good meal on the table when we walk into the house of God for you. I'm saying I believe in having knowledge, but just understand that that knowledge alone is not able to affect any change if it's not responded to in obedience. We got a lot, listen, I, and I'm talking about every church, and I'm talking about Wall Ridge too, but I'm talking about every church. We got a lot of people in the spectator section. We all do, all churches do. It's one of the problems with churches today. We got a lot of people that are willing to rah, 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 and they're willing to shake pom poms, but when it comes down to the actual putting, and I'm, listen, I'm talking about teaching a Sunday school class. I'm talking about handing out, I'm just talking about just taking the truth of the Word of God and putting it to work in your life. That might make you teach a Sunday school class. It sure enough will make you hand out gospel tracts. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about responding to the truth of the Word of God with more than an amen, with, with obedience in our lives. You see, faith it works. That's the purpose of our faith. God didn't save you to sit, and God didn't save you to speculate or ruminate. God saved you to serve Him and to obey Him. And then finally, and I'm just going to mention this, I, don't, I need about six more hours to preach this last point. And I don't have six more hours, and I know that. So let me just mention it in passing, because there's a lot here. We see that faith is not just the prof- or works are not just the profitability of our faith and the proof of our faith and the purpose of our faith. But we see that works are the perfection of our faith. In other words... The, the, the greatest transcendence of biblical faith is to produce a life changed and obedient to the God that saved it. Look what it says, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. You know why a lot of people misunderstand this passage? James and the Holy Spirit takes for granted that we know our Bible a lot better than we probably do. We look at this and we see it as one unbroken, immediate, present experience that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and then he was immediately called the friend of God. That's not what the Bible says. And you notice when you read it carefully, the Bible even here does not say that. There are several instances. And you know what it's connected with? It's connected with the sacrifice of Isaac. In other words, not to say he believed God, had righteousness imputed unto him, then was put on probation until God wanted to find out if he meant it or not. And so he went up and gave sacrifice, gave Isaac, put him on the altar, and God said, okay, I'll save you now. That's not what happened. In fact, if you look at Abraham's life, you know what you'll find way back in Genesis 15 was when Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Isaac wasn't even born at that time. 
He wasn't even born at that time. It would be years before Isaac would even be born. In fact, you know what the promise was that he believed in? It was the promise of Isaac. Isaac wasn't even around yet. The Bible says he believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He didn't do anything to earn that salvation or that righteousness. He just believed God. But there did come a day when his trust and faith in God had to be put to the test. And on that day at Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter number 22, he took Isaac, his only begotten son, up and he placed him on on an altar. And by the way, it wasn't his sacrifice, it was his surrender that God honored. It was not that he said, I'd be willing to give Isaac up because I love God that much. You know, the Hebrews writer tells us this, that Abraham gave Isaac, and here's why, he reckoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. God had promised that Isaac would create a great nation, that from his descendants there would be a great nation. At that time, Isaac didn't have any children. So here's what Abraham was saying. You see, it was faith even then. Abraham was saying... God told me that I'm going to have a son Isaac and through Isaac there's going to be a great nation. And now He's given me this son Isaac and He wants me to put him on this altar and sacrifice him and kill him. I believe that God is powerful enough that in order to keep His Word, if I kill him, God will raise him from the dead or God will do it however God needs to do it or wants to do it, but God will keep His promise. It was not the sacrifice, it was the surrender. It was the obedience. It was the faith that God was honoring. But you know that all throughout Abraham's life, never once do we read that he was called the friend of God. Again, never once. In fact, we've got to come all the way over to the book of Second Chronicles to find that. Second Chronicles 27, it says, Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Isaiah chapter 41, it's said again in a different way. In verse 8 it says, But thou, Israel, art my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham my friend. In other words, here's the timeline as it stands. Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and his righteousness is given unto him. He's made righteous. He's made just with God. There's a change that happens in Abraham's life. But you don't necessarily see that change immediately. In fact, if you turn over to the very next chapter, you find Abraham behaving kind of like a scoundrel. But sooner or later, the genuineness of his faith did win out in his life insomuch that he was willing in that ultimate test of faith to trust God with His only Son, that God would raise Him from the dead. And that life of faith is summarized, is crowned, is coronated with this grand statement that looking back over Abraham's life, you know what you have to say? He was the friend of God. He had been an enemy, but faith changed his life. Jesus changed his life. God transformed his life and made him from being an enemy to being a friend of God. In other words... Uh, We might say this, that works are the perfection of our faith. That's what God's trying to do in our life. He's trying to give us a faith so strong, Brother Ken, that it changes the way we live and makes us from living like an enemy of God to living like a friend of God. It's reiterated, by the way, in the story of Rahab. You know, when Rahab uh, believed God, it, it, it was when she received the messengers into her house. You know why? Because that was a death sentence, Brother Fred. She said, we've heard about how your army has marched up and down through this land and has destroyed people. We know the God of Israel is the true God and the hearts of our people are melting. And she said, it's going to mean death for me, but I'm going to take you into my house and protect you from those that would seek to kill you and to capture you. That was an action of faith. And it was in response to that, by the way, Brother Ken, that they give the promise of the scarlet cord hanging from the window that was a token of her faith. A true token, it says. And you know what happened then? It wasn't too late. She could have killed him. Women are mean. 
One of the greatest heroines in all the Word of God. Drove a nail through a boy's skull. All because he laid, all because he asked for a glass of milk and laid down to nap. That's mean, man. He had it coming. You men, spineless, won't support me. <laughs> you say, I ain't got to go home with you, preacher. <laughs> Rahab, she could have killed him. She could have called the alarm. She could have stepped out the door and said, hey, these men are here. Come get them. But you know what? She didn't do that. Because of her faith, her belief in the promise of God, she let those men go. Letting those men go was an expression. It was a work that was produced by her faith, her belief in God. So when the Bible says justified by works, it's not saying we're made righteous with God by works because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's saying that works are the vindication, the proof, the evidence of our faith in the Lord. How are we justified? Well, we sure enough couldn't be justified but by His blood. It's the means of our salvation. We don't have the ground to stand on without the blood of Jesus. But how do we get to Him? That's good that He did that. How do we get to Him? Well, faith, we're justified by faith. That's the manner of our salvation. We come believing what He said about us and about Himself and trusting His promise, believing in Him. You know what that will produce in us? It will produce some justification. It will be justified. It will be proven. It will be vindicated. It will be evidenced by a life of obedience to God whenever our faith is activated in our life, we'll begin to live in light of that faith. So we're justified by His blood. That's the means. By faith, that's the manner. And by works, that's the manifestation. It don't save you, but it does show a world that God has saved you. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I have a few very simple questions I want to ask. The first is the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. And it is this, can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know that you've been justified? You know that you're right with God. Not because you've done good works, either by commandment or by your conscience, but because you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Can you say, I know that I am in a right position with God? I'm not saying perfect, but I know that the righteousness of God has been put on my account and I've received Jesus as my Savior. If you cannot say that, would you slip your hand up? Nobody's looking around but me. I won't call your name. I won't embarrass you. But you'd say, Preacher, that's me. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I want to be. Please pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name. I won't ask you to stand up. I just want to pray for you. Would there be anyone that would say, Preacher, if I'm to be perfectly honest, I do know that I'm saved. I know I've been justified by His blood. I know I came to Him by faith. But if I'm to be honest, my life has not looked lately like a Christian's ought to. If a person was to look at my life, they might have trouble in some areas seeing that I'm a Christian. Maybe you'd even say it this way. People would know I'm a Christian. But if I was to be honest, there's some areas of my life where the Lord wouldn't be pleased. If that's true of you, would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name. I see that hand and that one and that one and that one. God bless you. That's wonderful. Let's have a word of prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to deal with the Lord. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.